Well, good morning once again. My name is Steve Wallen. I'm the campus pastor here at Genesis Church. And if you wonder what that means, I just want you to know if you're a guest or visitor, we are one church in two locations. We've got a campus in Noblesville. I went that way, but it's actually that way. We've got a campus in Noblesville, and we've got this one here in Carmel. I'm here in Carmel most weeks, and so it's my pleasure to welcome you once again to our Carmel campus of Genesis Church. If you've got your Bibles with you, uh, turn them to Ezekiel 37. That's where we're going to start this morning. We're going to spend some time there. Uh, weird to start in the Old Testament when you're talking about Jesus and you're talking about Easter, but we will. Ezekiel 37. If you have a tablet or a smartphone that you get your Bible on, go ahead and get that out. But if you don't have a Bible with you, there should be one of these laying on the floor right near you. You're welcome to pick that up. And if you don't have a Bible at home, why don't you take that one with you uh, so that you've got uh, something to read so you can uh, stay with us during this series. It's on page 602 in this Bible, so there's your, your help for the day. Uh, I just want to let you know, too, today that um, you know we're talking about a risen Jesus, but if you are someone who's worried about the zombie apocalypse... All right, or if you're someone who is a big fan of the TV show The Walking Dead, you're going to love the message today. I just wanted to put that right up front. We're going to start in Ezekiel 37, uh, verse 1. Ezekiel 37, 1. The hand of the Lord was on me. Now, let me explain the context of this verse before we go into it too deep. Ezekiel is a prophet. He's a man of God. A prophet is someone who uh, receives the word of God. God chooses to speak through them. And Ezekiel is writing this. So Ezekiel says, the hand of the Lord was on me. And he brought me out by the Spirit of the Lord and set me in the middle of a valley. It was full of bones. He led me back and forth among them, and I saw a great many bones on the floor of the valley, bones that were very dry. And at this point, if you grew up in church or you went to Sunday school when you were a kid, you're probably thinking, them bones, them bones, them dry bones, right? Everybody's got that song. And if you don't know that song, you probably know it was a dog food commercial at one time. And so you're thinking about that now the rest of the day. Happy Easter, everybody. The bones were very dry. He asked me, the Lord, he asked me, son of man, can these bones live? I said, sovereign Lord, you alone know. Then he said to me, prophesy to these bones. Now, that word prophesy is weird. It's a word that you only hear in church, but it basically means to speak the word of God to. So God is telling Ezekiel, you're going to speak what I tell you to speak to these bones. All right? So that's what he's saying. He says, prophesy uh, to these bones and say to them, dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the sovereign Lord says to these bones. I will make breath enter you and you will come to life. I will enter or I will attach tendons to you and make flesh come upon you and cover you with skin. I will put breath in you and you will come to life. Then you will know that I'm the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded, and as I was prophesying, there was a noise, a rattling sound, and the bones came together bone to bone. I looked, and tendons and flesh appeared on them, and skin covered them, but there was no breath in them. So Ezekiel is brought to this valley, and he's surrounded by dry bones. Now, we don't know for real if this really happened to Ezekiel or if this was a vision he received from the Lord. I don't think it really matters in this context because uh, what we're going to get out of this passage remains the same. And so there are two things the Lord tells him to do. The first thing is he says, I want you to prophesy to the bones, right? So basically, Ezekiel has to speak to the bones, And what he sees is that when he does that, when he does what the Lord's asked him to do, he speaks to the bones, they start to come together. They come together bone to bone, and then they start getting tendons and flesh and skin, and they look like a real body. Ezekiel, just by speaking to the bones, is able to make something come together that looks like a real body. It's got flesh and blood and tendons, but there's a curious statement in this verse. And In verse 8, it says, the bones looked like bodies but there was no breath in them. 
There was no life. And we're starting a new series this morning, as Robin said, called Only Love. And I think that's really the key to this series, that, that we look so often to the things of this world to bring us the things that only love can bring. And, and that we can use our best efforts, our best strength, and, and do work and do the things that we think are right. And we can put together a life, in this case a body, that looks good on the outside, We can fool a lot of people, but our efforts can't do what only love can do. Like only the love of God can truly make us alive. Our life may look good on the outside, but without the breath of God in our life, it's dead on the inside. So Ezekiel sees these bodies. Uh, Then the Lord gives him a curious command in verse 9. He goes on, he says, Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath. Hold on to that word for a minute. Prophesy to the breath. Prophesy, son of man, and say to it, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Come breath from the four winds and breathe into these slain that they might live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath entered them. They came to life and stood up on their feet, a vast army, the walking dead, right? There they are. The bones come back to life. God is showing Ezekiel that it is the breath. It is his breath that gives life. That because of his great love and his great power, that God can breathe on something and bring it to life. Just like if you know your Bible at all, you know in Genesis chapter 3, it talks about how God created the very first man, but it wasn't until he breathed into his nostrils that he came to life, right? It's the breath of God that gives life. That word breath that's used in Ezekiel 37, that, that word that we translate as breath, is originally the Hebrew word called ruach. Ruach. Now, you probably didn't know when you came to church this morning on Easter that you were going to get a Hebrew lesson, but that word ruach uh, is a word that over the years, as the Bible has been translated from the Hebrew into English, it sometimes is translated breath, like it is here in Ezekiel. It's sometimes translated as wind, and it's sometimes translated as the word spirit. So, for instance, in Genesis 1-2, It tells us, now the earth was formless and empty, darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. That word spirit is that same word, ruach. It's the Hebrew word ruach. So breath, wind, and spirit, it's the same word. And so you know that we're not here on Easter to talk about Ezekiel or even to talk about Adam. We're here to talk about Jesus. Jesus is the reason we celebrate. And we celebrate on Easter not just because he defeated death, although that's big, (laughs) but because he came to earth in the first place. You know, John chapter 1 tells us, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning, so that's weird that the Word was a he, right? He, the Word, was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. So the Word is a person, and then John goes on to tell us in John 1.14, the Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen the glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. So John is describing Jesus He's talking about Jesus is the word of God. He's the son of God. He's the word of God. He was with God in the beginning, and he was God. And he was, get this, full of grace and truth. How many times are we so full of one or the other? Right? Christians, I'm talking about a lot of times, Christians especially, we, we condemn people and we'll say, we'll use as an excuse, well, Jesus always told people the truth. That's absolutely true. He did. He always told people the truth. He never lied. 
or, or will not confront somebody in their sin, will not hold people accountable, and will say, well, Jesus was all grace. He was always graceful. He's full of grace. Well, it's true. Jesus was full of grace and truth. And we're, none of us are full of grace and truth, unfortunately, but that's the model we have. Jesus was full of grace and truth. He loved people too much. He cared for people too much not to confront them when they were in sin. But he also knew that we were all going to sin, and so he refused to condemn them uh, for that. In fact, if you're taking notes, you can write this down. uh, If you picked up a a message notes card on your way in, there are three reasons, I think, as we celebrate Jesus on Easter Sunday, I thought it might be uh, good to look at the three reasons why we celebrate Jesus. Uh, Number one is this. He he came to be our perfect example. Jesus came to be our perfect example. If you're a Christian and you're here today, you probably appreciate what Jesus did for you in his death. You probably really appreciate what he did for you in the resurrection. And those are great things. They're really important. But have you thought about, how much do you think about the example that he set with his life? We, we don't always look to Jesus' life as our example, you know, but he, the way he lived life full of grace and truth was incredible. It's a great lesson for us. You know, uh, he left a perfect heaven where he had perfect love and perfect communion with his father to come to earth and experience life as a human being. So he could know what this was like, but not just to live life but to show us how to live life as well. In fact, uh, one of Jesus' best friends as he walked to earth, a man named John, wrote this. He said, those who say they live in God should live their lives as Jesus did. Now, when I look at my life and my priorities, um, it doesn't look much like Jesus, but that's my model. That's my model for how I, how I should live. Jesus is our example. He is our model for how to live life. He's our model for how to Uh, be in prayer. He's our model for how to love people. He's our model for confronting other believers in sin. He's our model for knowing scripture. He's uh, our model for doing ministry. He is our model for how to live our life. And even if you're not a Christian, I think this can be helpful for you. You probably appreciate this aspect of Jesus, the way he lived, the way he loved, the way he was full of grace and truth. It's a great model for us to follow. If we want to know how God intended us to live lives as human beings, we need only to look to his son, Jesus, as our example. But there's a problem with that. You see, uh, the way Jesus lived his life irritated a lot of people. I mean, if you read through that, read through uh, the New Testament, it's hard to imagine that someone who was full of grace and truth, someone who loved everyone, could really irritate people with the way he lived, but Jesus did, and especially religious people. The religious people of the day were irritated with Jesus. And here's the reason for that. Uh, Jesus was concerned first and foremost with pleasing his Father in heaven. That was what he was here for. He was here to bring glory to his Father in heaven. And religious people are often more concerned about their own rules and their own paradigms and, and looking good to other people, looking good on the outside. Uh, This is why I believe there are so many skeptics around today. I think so many of us as Christians have abandoned the idea of having a relationship with Jesus in favor for our own religion or our own political gain or our own whatever the thing is that we placed highest on the podium. We've abandoned Jesus to take up that cause. And so we look like religious people. And religious people are more concerned about their rules and what other people think about them. And, but I want you to know, if you're a skeptic, you're welcome at this church. You know, Jesus always welcomes skeptics, and so we, we do too. And 
But, but you know, sometimes people seem very put together on the outside. You look at their life and you would say, hey, he goes to church. Uh, he's got a good life. She's got a good life. She seems to have everything together, but, but they're dead on the inside. That They don't have that breath of life. They don't have the love of God in them, right? I mean, why is it that so many times, the religious people of the day with Jesus, he said the same thing about them. So many times we lack the love that Jesus said would be our distinguishing characteristics as his followers. He said, they will know you are my disciples by the way you love, right? And so many times we lack that. We lack that thing that Jesus said about that. And that's what the religious people of Jesus' day did too. They, he looked at them. They were trying to please people. And Jesus looked at them and said, hey, I don't accept glory from human beings, but I know you. I know that you do not have the love of God in your hearts. And so those very same people started plotting to kill Jesus. Pretty early in his ministry, actually, as Jesus was preaching for people to repent, he was telling them, hey, turn from the things of this world because the kingdom of God is near. Jesus started preaching that, and the religious people started planning to get rid of him. They started plotting to kill him. And, and, and we know and we believe that God in his infinite power right, could have stopped that. But he chose not to. Why? Only love. His love for you and me, his love for the world he created. I know you know John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. See, Jesus didn't just come to be our perfect example. Number two is this. He came to be our perfect sacrifice. He came to be our perfect sacrifice. He paid the price for our sin. He paid the penalty for our mistakes. See, ever since the beginning of time when man has sinned or gone against God's plan, there's been a payment required. We, we see it over and over again. It's one of the times, one of the things, quite frankly, that makes the Old Testament so hard to read. If you've ever decided, I'm going to read the Bible, and you start reading in Genesis, um, by the time you get to Exodus or Leviticus, chances are you're probably done because you see so much blood and so much destruction, and you think, why is this? I don't get this. Why is there so much blood here? Well, I think it's like, you know, it's like reading a Tarantino script or something. You know, you've got all this blood everywhere. What is up with that? Well, I think it's one of the ways that God shows us how costly our sin is to him. You know, we, we live in this sin-soaked world. It's a world that's so broken, and it's, our human nature is so inclined to sin that there was a lot of payment required. But God, as we talked about last week, who is so rich in mercy, chose to allow his son, Jesus, to pay it all. That, that anyone who would accept this payment was free from the debt they owe. Uh, some of us are really stubborn. We want to pay that debt on our own. Uh, I, I remember one time my family and I were eating lunch at Logan's Roadhouse, and uh, we always run up a pretty good tab there. And uh, we got done, and uh, I asked the waitress, I said, can you bring me the check now? And she said, I'm sorry, it's already been paid for. And I don't know if you've ever had this experience, but what you do is the first thing you do is you immediately look around to see who you know, Right? Okay, who was it? Who was it? And you stand up and you're looking over into the bar. Do I see anybody? I don't know anybody here. And you're looking around. And uh, then the waitress says, uh, you're done. You can go. And I'm like, well, did they leave a tip? Yeah, they, they, they tipped. You, you can't pay anything. And you end up like backing out of the restaurant like you robbed the place. Like, <laughs> hey, all right, everybody, see ya. You know, 
but you can't pay anything. It's such an awkward situation. And for some of us who are type A people who want to earn our own way and want to earn our keep, right? It's really difficult. But that's, that's what happened. God chose to let Jesus pay the price for us. It's been covered. It is paid. So when the time was right, Jesus was betrayed by one of his closest friends. He was arrested and put on trial, found innocent of all charges, but then sentenced to death. And not just any death, but the horrible death hanging on a cross. And as he hung there on the cross, Scripture tells us this. It says, with a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last Jesus what? Breathed. He what? Breathed. You remember earlier when we talked about the power that's in the breath of God? <laughs> well, we'll just know that Jesus' last breath was powerful. Because one of the men who walked closely with Jesus, a man named Matthew, a man who, by the way, the love of Jesus rescued from his life as a hated tax collector, captured what happened in that moment. When Jesus breathed his last, at that moment, Matthew 27, 51 says, at that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook, the rocks split, the tombs broke open, the bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. They came out of the tombs after Jesus' resurrection, went into the holy city, and appeared to many people. See, Walking Dead fans, I told you, right? The, the breath of God has... Some, Power, the Ruach of God has power. And in this case, when Jesus breathed his last, the curtain of the temple was torn in two, uh, or the veil as it was sometimes called, and it was there to separate the presence of God from the presence of his people. That veil, that curtain was there so that the people of God couldn't get too close to the presence of God. It kept us from directly interacting with him. But when Jesus breathed his last, the curtain was torn in two and we were able to approach now the throne of God because of the sacrifice of Christ. You know, we were able to go have a personal relationship with the God of the universe. Until that very moment, only a few people, a few selected people that you see in the Old Testament, people like Moses and David and Joseph, where it tells us that God walked with them or God was with them. But now when Jesus breathed his last, that relationship was available to all of us, to everyone. Now, this is really interesting because before he was crucified, Jesus told his followers that he was going away. You know, we talked about this last week, that maybe that's one of the reasons he raised Lazarus from the dead was so they could see what was going to happen, right? He said, I'm going to go away for a while and where you're going, where I'm going, you can't follow. And it's good for me. It's good for you that I'm going away is what he told him. He said, it's good for you that I'm going away because when I do, I will send another, a comforter, the Ruach of God, the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, the Ruach of God, because Jesus breathed his last the disciples, and then the first Christians received the Holy Spirit of God. And all Christians, all the way up until today, even today, we are beneficiaries of that. That, that we, when we accept the payment of Jesus on the cross for our sin, we receive God's Holy Spirit who comes to live inside of us. And here's the good news for you today. If you receive the Spirit of God, if the Spirit or the breath of God comes to live inside you, He has the power to bring what's dead to life. God has the power to bring the dead to life. Don't believe me, just watch. Jesus' body is taken down off the cross. He's dead. He's got bones and tendons and flesh and skin, but there's no life left in that body. 
that the breath of God is gone. He's buried, he's put in a tomb, and the writer Matthew tells us that the religious people of the day were so worried that his disciples were going to steal the body that they rolled a gigantic stone in front of the tomb and placed a guard to post watch. Why do you need a guard to watch a dead man? And the next day was the Sabbath. It was Saturday, so no work could be done. And then the next day, on Sunday morning, that very first Easter Sunday, this is what happened in Luke 24. We see this. On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took the spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. Now, these were some of the women that had followed Jesus the last days of his life. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. In their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground. But the men said to them, why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He is risen. And this is where I want to land today. You know, we celebrate Jesus because he's the only one that ever rose from the grave, except Lazarus, who he himself raised, right? He's the only one who's ever come back from the dead. By defeating death, he shows us that we can, he can overcome anything in our lives. That even in this offer of eternal life, as we talked about last week, it doesn't start when you die. It can start today. See, by living a perfect life, he came to be our perfect example. You know, by, by paying the price that we deserve, he came to be our perfect sacrifice. And that could be enough. I mean, after taking our sin to the cross... And tearing the veil that separated us from God, Jesus offers us eternal life. And I mean, how much more could you ask for that? Well, there is one more thing. He wants you to have a great life now. You know, because he defeated death and rose from the grave, number three is this, he came to be our perfect redeemer. He came to be our perfect redeemer. What does that mean? Well, the word redeem really just means to take something of little value and exchange it for something of great value. You take something of little value and exchange it for something of great value. I'm going to probably give away my age here, but when I was a kid, uh, my mom used to go to the grocery store, and uh, with every purchase, she would get green stamps. Anybody remember green stamps? A few of you? Good. All right. So you get these green stamps, right, and you collect them, and there's like 50 on a page, Every dollar you spend, you get so many green stamps and 20, maybe 20 or something like that. You get 50 on a page and you collect and you put them in these and you lick them. Remember when you had to lick stamps? How weird is that now, right? But you lick the stamps and you put them in the book and then you get a a book full of like 10 pages and then you collect all these books of stamps. And when you get uh, enough, you can go redeem them, right, for something of value. I remember getting my very first fishing rod I got. With green stamps. My mom spent all this money at the grocery store. I took my green stamps. I went and got my fishing rod. I took these books, which had no value, and handed them to the lady at the counter. I couldn't believe she gave me a fishing rod. It was of great value to me. Now, I was never very good at fishing, so probably monetarily it wasn't very great, but it was of great value to me. Jesus offers to take our lives and redeem them, exchange them for a life more valuable. And the key is this. When the women came to the tomb... The, the men that were there, I believe they're angels of the Lord. doesn't say that in Scripture, but they do have clothes like lightning. The, the angels of the Lord ask them this question. Why do you look for the living among the dead? And can I just be honest and say that's what so many of us are doing. Like we are looking for the things of this world to give us value, to give us meaning, to give us satisfaction. You know, we look for getting our high school diploma or our college degree 
We, we look for a new career. We look for a husband or a wife. We, we look to a baby or a car or a house or a new kitchen or new furniture or a phone to bring us happiness and contentment. We keep looking to things to give us the life that only love can bring. You know, Jesus wants to redeem those things for us. We we try to find our value in things, and if we can't, we'll often look to experiences, to vacations or adventures, or if we can't find it in good experiences, we'll look for some some more painful experiences like alcohol or drugs or pornography. And what we find time after time is that those things let us down. I was talking this week to a friend who's a 24-year recovering alcoholic. And he was telling me all about his first time, he remembers his first time getting drunk and um, how he fell down the stairs and he threw up. And I said, well, that sounds like a terrible experience. Why would you ever want to repeat that? And he says, well, because for the 10 minutes before that, it was awesome. He said, I felt skinny and funny and popular. And he said, I spent the next six years of my life chasing that 10 minutes. But in the end, it lets us down. They let us down. These things may feel good in the moment. They may provide a temporary high, but in the end, they leave us wanting. And what we get is a life that looks great on the outside, but it's dead on the inside. And so we look all around to find meaning and value and purpose, but we won't find that in the things around us. It's, It's why one writer of Scripture reminds us not to lose heart. He says, though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we're being renewed day by day for our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. You know, all of us, he says, sometimes get to a place where troubles are all we see. But he's reminding us that they're light and momentary in the grand scheme of things. So we fix our eyes, he says, so we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what, on what is unseen, since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. You know, Ezekiel stood in this valley, and he was surrounded. He looked around, and all he could see was bones. But there was something else that he couldn't see. He was also surrounded by the breath of God. The Spirit of God was in that valley just waiting to be called on. And for so many of us, we're, we've got this dead life. I mean, it may look good to our neighbors or our friends or the people we work with or the people we go to school with, but we know we're really dead on the inside. Like we feel that hole. We feel that lack of purpose and meaning. And the whole time, we are surrounded by the, the breath of God, the Spirit of God, the God who so desperately wants to redeem our old life and give us a new one. Hey, if you were here for our baptism service three weeks ago, you may have heard some stories that really touched you and spoke to you. But there was one story we wanted to share a little more in depth. It was a story of a young woman named Mara who is living just that kind of life. She she was having fun, looking happy, uh, looking good on the outside. Her life looked great, but she was really dead on the inside. And as we close today, I'd love for you to hear her story from her perspective.